Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Hello, my name's Tim McMillan. It's my great privilege to welcome you once again to another edition of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. In this episode, a truly remarkable guest with a remarkable story. He's a former ice addict, a former prisoner, uh, and was once in charge of one of the largest drug dealing operations uh, this state of WA has ever seen. But these days, uh, completely transformed uh, and is the founder and CEO uh, of a place that many will be familiar with, Shalom House, a men's residential rehabilitation program. Peter Lyndon James, welcome to Inspiring Stories. Thank you for having me here. Quite an introduction. It's not uh, often you get to string those sorts of words together. But uh, look, I've, I've almost given sort of like a before and after uh, snapshot there. So much goes in between those bookends, though. How do you sum up your life in, in just a few words? Um, uh, sum it up in a, in a few words. A little bit of a struggle. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of a struggle. A little bit of a roller coaster ride, actually. I mean, there's a BC and there's an AC. Yep. Um, before it all happened and after it all happened. So, mm. yeah, two, two, two sides of the coin. Do you see it as, as simply that, a transformation? I mean, I say it's an end point, but uh, you, you're still a relatively young man. There's still some way to go. Yeah, well, yeah, a long way to go. I mean, the hardest thing for myself was to actually try to be normal, try to be a geek like yourself. Mm. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, well, a geek, a geek, a geek just for, for yourself and for your listeners as a, as a productive member of society one that lives free from the influence of drugs and substances, one that can wake up next to his wife in the morning and, mm. and go and do the normal stuff that most people take for granted. A geek, to me, is a normal person. I mean, I've always aspired mm. to be a geek, a normal person. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case no, for a long part of your life, your, your, your early life. And I know you're an open book on it, but I'll, I'll just ask you to describe how bad things were. It's been said that you were selling... About forty thousand dollars worth of of meth a day at one point. Yeah, on average, but I'd move on average about two and a half kilos of methamphetamines a day. So I think there's, um, by memory, there's um, sixteen. Uh, it was a pound. There's thirty two ounces. So we used to drive around sixty four, sixty about sixty four ounces uh, mm. of meth in my car a day, and and heaps of guns and nine mils, forty four Glock, C four, a lot of silly stuff. I mean, I, I can remember you describing a story once where you know you had the. The TRG burst through your front door. You had a helicopter over your house. Well, this while you were a family man as well. That it's just it's it's the sort of stuff you see on on Breaking Bad or a TV show. Yeah, well, I actually got up one morning after sixteen days no sleep. I disappeared on my wife as I, as I normally did, and went about my business. And I, I normally come home to rest because I knew that, that that was a safe place. And and I got up one morning and um, just to hear the helicopter over the roof, and all of a sudden all the windows started smashing. Police come through with shotguns, bulletproof vests. 
and they had me down in the kitchen um, with a, a knee in my back, and I could see my wife naked and down the hallway holding our a 12, 13 month old. Mm. Um, someone with a shotgun with the back of her head. How do you how do you store away and and process those memories? Uh, you know, given where you are now, I mean, are, are they fuel for you now to keep going? Yeah, well, a lot of us don't mean to be who we are, but it's not as easy just saying stop using drugs. Mm. I mean, we used to get raided regularly. I mean, for us and police, and it was just a normal part of life. And mm. um, we'd always wake up with coppers coming through early in the morning, or would be under surveillance or followed. Or but that particular one was a pretty bad one, only because of the depth. Mm. Uh, what happened was I'd sold a box of dynamite the day before, and I didn't know one of the fellows that I sold a stick to. Um, a stick of jelly, so that was a police informant, and he tipped the coppers off. And when you're doing dynamite and stuff, that that caused me a bit of problems. I probably shouldn't have done that, but I probably should have done a lot of things actually. But that one, that one caused me a bit of a pickle. Mm. And um, yeah, we copped a lot of heat the next day. It was probably the worst heat I've ever copped. Um, but it was a bit of a turning point in my life. I can still remember laying in the kitchen. Um, with the police with his name in my back and send my wife and with my son and my younger son in the hands. Mm. At that time, I had uh, two kids, one the age six and my other one was 18 months. That, 13, 13, 18 that's, months. A, that's a profound moment for anyone to experience. Yeah, yeah. It's still got it burns in my brain. It still actually brings mm. up a bit of emotions, as you can just tell. Mm. Yeah. Can I ask, the, the selling uh, and, the, and the life of crime that went around it, was that uh, initially to fund the addiction? For the selling for any person who doesn't understand addiction is that um, there's often things that drive addiction. Uh, I've been sticking needles in my arms and selling drugs and, and doing that stuff since I was a, a nine-year-old kid. And for me, it was just the standard norm. And because of my personality, I, started, I, I worked my way from the bottom of the food chain to the top of the food chain um, pretty easily. At that time, I'd been with my wife for probably 13, 14 years and she grew up completely normal farmer's daughter, Wongan Hills, ducks at school, work experience as a police cadet, never done nothing wrong. I think the worst crime that she ever committed was snuck in the boys' dorm one night and made her have a puff of a cigarette. And then she, she met me. And then uh, and for us, for the first 13 me, made, uh, uh, years of our marriage, we actually moved every three months running from myself. Mm. Um, I'd go to any town and start off with a packet, uh, like a gram or a half a gram, and then I'd get to an eight ball, then get to an ounce, and then I could see what was going to happen. I could see I was about mm. to end up in prison, and so we'd pack up the house and we'd run again. And so we've been around Australia probably running seven times, mm. running from ourselves and wherever we went, we went. We, we can pack up a house. We used to be able to pack up a house in a day. And um, we, we moved every three months, three to six months, literally for the whole of our marriage without fail. On the run almost. Yeah, basically wherever I went. I got a Kalgoorlie. For example, I'd start off with a packet, get to an eight ball, within six months I had to run again. Yeah. And it just kept following me. I tried to run for myself. I tried to hang around the geeks, the normal people, but I felt like I was a weed, that I didn't belong, mm. that you were better than me. Um, and the only time I could hold my head up high around you is if I was off my face on drugs or I had a few beers or I had some, some sort of chemical assist, uh, substance in my system to make me feel normal. Mm. Um, on the inside, I had a lot of stuff in me um, and that um, hadn't been dealt with. Um, and, and I found that the only way to cope with what, what it was within me was to um, put chemicals on it. As is often the case, um, it's because you want to numb some sort of pain that starts very early in life, and, and yours fits into that category too, I understand. Yeah, mine was like mum and dad. I think a lot of us as mums and dads, um, especially young in life, we make silly choices, and, 
And a lot of parents, they make silly choices and they have kids and they realise that the partner they have kids was, wasn't wasn't actually the partner that was meant for them and they move on and they get another partner and they find that that partner is for them. But that kid that they had through that mistake um, later on in life is going to grow up with not its real dad or not its real mum uh, and that mum or dad is going to uh, meet somebody else who they know, they know is for them and they're going to have kids. And when that child gets to the age of 14 or 15, it's going to process hang on, how come this isn't my real dad? Mm. Um, and when I do go to my real dad, he's a lot nicer than my my mum because um, he's never punished me. My mum's the one that's been punishing me and he tries to find identity and, and all of a sudden as he starts to process his life, um, he starts getting angry, he starts getting bitter, he feels like he doesn't fit. Why isn't he like his other brothers and sisters and why is he growing up in a split family? Me, my dad, my dad, he took off when I was... Um, uh, seven, he took off with a babysitter, a 15-year-old lady, and he took off up north and left mum with uh, five kids. And, and I can remember from the age of seven, between the age of seven and nine, I can remember as a seven-year-old, a van pulling up, taking away our stereo, taking away our TV, taking away our lounge. I can remember our life slowly falling apart. And I can remember mum getting lots of different boyfriends. And, and, and one in particular, um, he wasn't a very nice fellow that she had for many years, they used to grab my mum and really physically abuse my mum in a way that um, little kids shouldn't actually see. Um, one in particular time, I remember walking out in the lounge room, seeing mum sitting on the end of the lounge, and um, after the, all the screaming had stopped, I'd, been, I'd hidden in the room where this bloke was a pretty violent fella. Um, I walked out in the lounge after all the screaming had stopped, and I seen my mum sitting on the end of the couch with her head cupped in her hands, and in her right hand she had the super glue, in her left hand she had a false teeth which had been snapped in half. And she was sobbing, and she turned her head up sideways, and her um, her face was matted in blood, and she couldn't even see out of the slits of her eyes because of that black. Mm. And she's trying to glue her teeth to, to put them back into her mouth, that's... And, and that's what these black used to do to my mum quite often. Um, as an eight-year-old kid, I, I was the sort of kid that when I went to school um, to get food for brekkie, I'd go open the cupboard, and all there'd be was mouldy bread and powdered milk. Um, I was the sort of kid that had to go to school and pinch other kids' lunches. Um, every time my mum got put into a rehab, and they put me with strangers and foster families, and our whole family was literally decimated. Mm-hmm. Brothers and sisters went to grandmas and grandpas, and me, I tried to stay with mum, and they put me with strangers. So, yeah, it was a pretty bad upbringing. And, and, and that's what I understand, uh, I suppose, led you towards a, a life of incarceration because you were running away from foster homes so much. We'll get into that uh, in just a moment. We're going to take a break. Uh, but, yeah, I'd like to explore that uh, with you because it became, I suppose, part of your reality, isn't it? Didn't yeah. it? Living uh, effectively locked up. So we'll be back in, uh, in just a moment on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to this edition of Inspiring Stories, and they don't come much more inspiring than uh, Peter Lyndon James, our special guest uh, for this edition. Uh, You mentioned uh, just before the break there, uh, your childhood, it, uh, you, you pointed to some, some pretty horrific memories that are obviously still uh, very raw and very powerful to you. Um, 
you were in and out of, uh, of foster homes. Obviously, <laughs> you didn't like it there because you kept running away. And uh, according to the court system, at least, uh, they felt that they had no option but to really lock you up when you were still a child. Yeah, well, what, what happened was mum kept getting put into rehabilitation centres and, and all of us family, we were split up with kids and stuff. And um, uh, I kept getting put into rehabs and uh, sorry, children's homes, running away from the children's homes. I was at Parkable Children's Home. I'd run away from Parkable um, three times. On the third time, they caught me sleeping in, in a good Samaritan bedroom. Can I ask, why did you, why did you run away? Just, it, it was just oh, that oh, horrible being there? Not horrible. It's been my whole life. I just wanted to be a geek. Um, all I ever wanted, um, all I ever wanted was my mum and my dad. Um, I just wanted the uh, like other kids. I wanted to run up the corridor and jump in a bed with mum and dad for a cuddle. Mm. I wanted to go to one school. I went to sixteen different schools. I only made grade six. I've never been on any family holiday at all in any way, shape, or form as a child. I've never sat at a kitchen table as a child and had a meal. Um, I've never played footy or soccer, I've never done nothing normal. Um, and the way I learnt how to actually put the seat down for a, a lady before she goes to the toilet, um, a, a little boy shouldn't have to learn that way. Mm. Um, I never had my dad teach me anything about being a man or a boy. I never had any parental modelling at all in any way, shape or form. And every time they put me with these strangers, all I wanted was my mum and dad being an eight-year-old kid. Um, I couldn't understand what was happening. I couldn't understand why dad would run off with a another lady, I couldn't understand why mum would love the alcohol more than she would love me. Mm. Um, I slept at my mate's house when I was eight at a caravan park in Gosnells and, and I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and this man, my mate's uncle, was molesting me and I had to lay there frozen solid as an eight-year-old um, boy while this man done stuff to me. Um, but I couldn't tell my mum about the stuff that happened to me because um, she was more concerned about the bloke that used to... Uh, Beat the street crap out of her and, and more concerned about the alcohol. And little kids at that age, they don't have the skills or the tools to process. And, and your heart, it actually, your heart, your hard drive out of the heart flow the issues of life and out of the heart flow the consequence of life, out of the heart the mouth speaks. Inside me I had a lot of anger and bitterness and resentment and confusion and, and doubt and why and where's dad and, and why, why am I living this way and why am I stuck with strangers, and all I want is my mum and my dad, why not normal? But I had no one to give me the answers for the questions that I had. And as a child, as an eight-year-old kid, I tried to process mm. um, what it is I was going through, and I tried to implement whatever boundaries and whatever I could in my life to protect myself. And, and if it worked for me, it became part of who I was, and, and I got put in these children's homes. I didn't want my children's homes. I want my mum and my dad. Mm. And, and believe it or not, I, I went to Parkable Children's Home my dad was working at a, at a company then called Midland um, Toyota. It was down the hill. And I'd run away from the children's home and I'd sleep in the Good Samaritan bin 200 metres from where dad worked. I mean, he didn't know that, but I used to sleep in the Good Samaritan bin. Up until that time, I'd never stolen anything. I was only nine. Um, I think the worst I ever done was took a loaf of bread from outside um, the shop um, when they delivered the bread early in the morning. But I'd snuggle into my Good Samaritan bin with my loaf of bread and my milk and my, and my clothes and it'd be nice and warm. But they caught me three times in this Good Samaritan bin. On the third time they caught me um, in the Good Samaritan Samaritan bin, they took me back up to Parkable Children's Home. And I hadn't spoken to my dad since he took off when I was seven, literally at all. hadn't spoken to him. And I remember as a a nine-year-old boy, I walked into the office of this children's home and my dad was sitting to the right. Um, The counsellor lady was sitting to the left. And when I walked into this room, 
they didn't do any introduction with Dad at all. Um, they didn't say, hey, we haven't seen your dad for two years, here he is. I just walked into this room, I was completely taken off guard. And the lady said to me, said, Peter, listen, you obviously don't want to be here anymore. Um, three times you've run away in the last few months. Um, you're wasting our time and our resources, we're not having you here anymore. You can either go and live with your dad um, or you can go to Longmore. And when I looked at my dad, I heard a voice and it whispered to my head and it said, he doesn't love you anymore. And I remember thinking with my mind and I processed it, and all the stuff that I've been through for the last two years. All my brothers and sisters were now split out. My, my two younger brothers and my sister was living with my grandma. Mm. My sister Judy was living with a best friend. I'd been sexually abused. I'd been through heaps and heaps of foster families. I'd been seen my mum literally obliterated by blokes. I'd seen stuff sexually um, that I shouldn't have actually seen. Um, and when I heard that voice, he doesn't love you anymore, I remember saying, yeah, that's right. And when I said, yeah, that's right, I felt something go from my head and it landed into my heart, and it was an overwhelming anger and hatred towards my dad. If my dad hadn't run away with that babysitter, I wouldn't have been through what I've been through. My family wouldn't have been destroyed. And so I said to the lady, I'd go to Longmore. And then I heard another voice that said, Peter, Peter, you're making a mistake. And then I heard another voice say, no, stuff him. I'm mm. going to make him pay for what he's done to me. Mm. And so I said, I'll go to Longmore. But I knew deep in my heart, and I can remember it clear as day, um, that I made a mistake. I shouldn't have went to Longmore. I should have went to Dad. But the problem is Dad was still staying with the lady that he had run him off with, and I blamed my dad for running off and leaving us five kids and not looking after us. So do you I was supposed to go to Longmore. Do you still blame your dad for a lot of uh, of what happened in those no, I don't, horrible years of your life? No, I don't, I don't blame my dad at all. And um, For a long time, um, for probably 31 years of my life, I blamed everybody else for why I was like I was. Um, all of us over the course of our life, um, we face circumstances that we do and we don't create. Um, but through every circumstance we face, um, we are the ones that make a choice that determine the direction of our life. Um, as an eight-year-old kid, um, did I have the skills and the wisdom and the knowledge to make the choices mm. based upon the circumstance I faced? No, I didn't. Um, mm. For a season, yes, uh, my dad and my mum was to blame. Um, they did things wrong. They made mistakes. What they did was not okay. But there was a time, um, uh, and I didn't realise at that time, but there was a time where all of a sudden I became a man and sooner or later I've got to take responsibility for my, my actions mm. and that I got to a certain point in life where a lot of us do. Um, uh, I got to a certain point where um, I should have taken responsibility for my life, but I didn't. I chose to continue to blame everybody mm. else why I was like I was and I just continued on the destructive path um, even though I knew I had the tools to change it differently. Mm. What a lucky man you have to have uh, your lovely wife Amanda still by your side. Yeah, if you hear what I've done to her, mate, she wouldn't be here. <laughs> mm. We might, uh, I might ask you more about that uh, in a moment. But look, given everything that you've said about you know your your childhood and the struggles and the, you know the anger from such a young age, how you've had to to fend for yourself, it's it wouldn't be a surprise to many people um, that you ended up turning to drugs in a big way at some point. Yeah, well, yeah, the the. As a, as a nine-year-old nine year boy, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in, in children's homes, but as a nine-year-old boy, that time at Longmore, I don't know if Longmore's not actually around anymore. They've no. Done, they've demolished it. Horrible place, though, by all accounts. Yeah, it's the old-school model of the range view of the Bankshire Hill, but it's actually it's an actual prison. Yep. Um, but I remember when they, they took me to Longmore, um, um, I remember one, one o'clock in the morning pulling up at the gates and they took me into... The administration building, um, they'd done their paperwork and then they took me in the ablution block 
and they did what they did where they strip you naked and um, um, for a nine-year-old kid being stripped naked by a stranger, especially having been sexually abused and stuff. Um, and they gave me a pair of pyjama pants and six comic books and, and my heart was going about 400 mile an hour and I, I was never, I can, I've never in all my life been so petrified. Yeah. And, and let's be clear, this is because, not because you had committed any crimes here, it's because you were considered too difficult to keep in a, in a children's home or in a foster setting. I'd never done anything wrong. I'd never no. stolen everything. I'd never hurt anybody. Yeah. All I did was run away from strangers because I mm. wanted my mum and my dad. Mm. And I'm getting put in a prison because I want my mum and my dad. Mm. And they stripped me naked. They put nip cream in my hair and they put some cream somewhere else. Yeah. They marched me down a row of prison cells. There were 16 cells to the left, 16 cells to the right. Never been more petrified in all my life. They slid back this pad bolt. They threw me in the cell and they shut the door. And I remember jumping on the bed, grabbing a hold of my pillow, bawling my eyes out, crying, and cuddling my pillow, rocking side to side, saying, if you let me out now, behave, I promise I won't run away again. And and I'm a 47-year-old man, and I still, every night, um, I cuddle my pillow and I rock side to side mm. um, to get to sleep. I remember as a nine-year-old kid, I remember laying in that prison cell, cuddling my pillow, rocking side to side, bawling my eyes out, petrified, saying, if you let me out now, I promise I'll never run away again. I promise mm. you. I promise you. Um, but the cell door... It they never open. gave you that chance. No, the cell door, it didn't open. And uh, and um, But I know that I know that I know that if somebody if somebody had opened that cell that day, I know that I'd never run away again. Mm. But it didn't open. And for me, um, that's why I do what I do. A lot of us don't want to actually be who we are, um, but we don't know how to change. Mm. You know, and it's not as easy as just saying stop using drugs because the drugs, it actually ca- it covers up the anger and the bitterness and the resentment. It can- covers up the guilt and the shame. It covers up the confusion. It actually gives you the coping mechanisms to hide all the hurt and the pain and the anger mm. and the frustration of what's inside you. Mm. But if somebody had opened that door that day, I know my life would have changed. That experience was enough to scare the living crap out of me. Mm. And and I call that an E now. I call that a person who is at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom who will do whatever it takes uh, to change their life. And, and, and that's my mission now is what I do is I try to find those who are in that place. Yep. And that's why I have a whole house for them. At Shalom House, that's as it. it's uh, as it's known, uh, regarded as Australia's strictest drug rehab centre. We're going to talk about that after the break. Our special guest on this edition of Inspiring Stories, Peter Lyndon James, Back with more in just a moment here on 882-6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882-6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to this edition of Inspiring Stories. Peter Lyndon James uh, is my special guest. Uh, Peter, uh, we're going to move on to more positive times, if I can call it uh, call it positive times. Now, you got out of jail for the last time in 2001. Um, walking out the gates for the last time, was there a voice in your head at, the, at that moment that said, never again, we're going to move forward, this is, this is in the past now? Um, you could probably say there was, yeah. I mean, the... Uh the the last lag and we call it lagging and when you do jail we call it prison terms. My, my last yep. lagging, my last prison term was uh, probably my, probably the best one I've ever had. Actually, it was really good. I had favour and 
I've actually really enjoyed the last prison term. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was a uh, it was good to know it would be my last, or it felt like it would be my last. Yeah, at Shalom House, it's now huge. It's uh, you're looking at, uh, at at making this a, na- a nationwide thing. But uh, let's go back to the beginning of Shalom House. How did it all come about? Um, well, in uh, when I got out of prison in 2001, I went and studied at Bible College. I went to 16 different schools, only in my grade six. Um, I can't even read run writing, um, but I'm a multi-skilled fellow and I hold nearly every trade there is in the way that I own is by looking. I mean, 2005, I became a volunteer a prison chaplain yep. at Acacia Prison, which is a first uh, private prison. Um, uh, it's an ecumenical chaplain, so I'm not a religious fellow. I'm, I'm, I won't go into that, but it's an ecumenical um, prison, and so we cater for people from all faiths, whether you're Muslim, Hindu, Christian, doesn't matter what it is. But I spent five years at the prison, three days a week as a volunteer, trying to come alongside those who I grew up with, trying to encourage them to change their life like I'd changed my life. Um, I, my last prison term was in 2002. I studied for three years in 2005. I'd done five years voluntary at Acacia Prison. I finished at Acacia Prison in 2010 and decided that I'd become a full-time volunteer. And so my wife actually at the time I had a guarding business. Um, my wife ran the business and she paid the bills, paid the mortgage. We owned our own home. We we're 100% debt-free, and and so all we needed was her income. I'm, I wasn't concerned about money. I was concerned about that nine-year-old little boy who might be stuck in a prison cell, not wanting to be who he is. Mm. And so I started full-time voluntary work, and I've been a full-time volunteer since then, and still am today. Yep. Um, and so I'd done that for two years, floated, and and what happened is I seemed to attract a lot of blokes who come across my path that needed help to change their life. Yep. And what I used to do is put them in cars and take them to various rehabilitation centres and places that I knew that might be able to help to connect them with. And a lot of them I didn't actually connect with. Um, I'd take eight down to a place down in Mandurah and four would stick around and, and, and two would leave 24 hours later. I'd take some to a place in Subia. I'd take some out to a place out in Gosnells. And I spent two years just floating around trying to give people wise advice about how you could change your life. And to one day I drove past a house next to Banyout Prison and I had a big facade sign on it. At the time I was, in, I was 100% debt-free, owned my own home. I went and had a look at this house and the house had all the makings of what I would call a house that would disciple men. And what yep. I mean by disciple is come alongside, had a great workshop, had heaps of rooms. And so I said to my wife, why don't we just go in debt and we'll get a mortgage on a house and we'll buy this house and we'll stick seven fellas in it and we'll come alongside them and at least we can come alongside them then. I mean, we got it, we're all on the same page. And so I went in debt and bought this house and um, just started discipling men. And um, seven, I discipled seven and seven turned into 14 and 14 turned into 21 and 21 turned into 30 and 30 turned into 50 and 50 turned into 70. And, 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 and still it goes. And yes, How many are you up to now? 140. Wow. 140 men across uh, 13 properties, and um, we pay over $11,000 in rents. So we rent all the properties now. Yep. Um, we had to sell the house um, that we actually went in a mortgage for because ourselves, my wife, have been living off our own savings for the last um, seven years. We don't take anything from Shalom at all, um, at all in any way, shape, or form. But we rent all the properties. So currently, we have 140 men, um, 70 plus staff. Uh, Nearly a hundred volunteers. Um, yeah, we're, we're pretty chockers. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, can I ask? 
in terms of your transformation, your redemption, your salvation, whatever you want to call it, how important has your faith been to you? Was it something that, that just sort of I made a, happened I made a, to you? I made a bit of a boo-boo, actually. It's like I, I hate religion, right? And, and, and it might confuse some of your listeners, but I really do hate religion with a passion. Organised uh, traditional religion, you mean? No, religion. See, religion, we'll, 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 we'll pitch the Olympic flag and I'm going to paint you a visual, uh, the Olympic emblem, but we're only going to have four circles. The first circle, we'll put an R in there and we'll call that a religious man. A religious man runs around saying fish, chips and salt every second word. for you know, the F-bomb? Yep. Fish. And the sea, chips, mm-hmm, chips, mm-hmm. chips, and the salt word, fish, chips, and salt. Yep. A religious man runs around fish, chips, and salts every second word, sees the chicks at size 8, 36, double D, and they're, oh, she's not bad, and sits there, gossips, lies, and steals, and yet he goes to church once a week. Yeah. That's a religious man. I can't stand the buggers. Yeah. Seriously, they, they make faith look bad, and, and everything I don't want to be. Yeah. And then let's check a circle next to that one on the right-hand side. And we'll put a C in that in that circle, and we'll call them Christianese. And a Christianese is a Hallelujah, praise you, Jesus, up the Lord, Lord this and Lord that, and all this and Lord that, and and they set the standard of Christianity or faith so high. When you come from where I'm come from, they don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't swear, and oh, that's too hard for me. Mm. I'm short and fat, and I have got a bit of a belly, and I can't make that step that far that quick, especially because I'm not nowhere near close to what they are. <laughs> and so they're the, they're the Christianese mob. We walk in there. And you just feel uncomfortable, Brandon. The, the, the holier now, the better the new club. That's how you feel because of where I've come from. Yep. It's not saying that there's nothing wrong with them. A lot of people are actually call to be Christianese. Christianese means they have high morals there, honesty, integrity, truth, kind, caring, considerate, compassionate, others focused. They sponsor children. You find most of the famines and most of the earthquakes and most of the when we have mass problems in the world, you see Christian groups go in there and they're in there and they just they just they go over and above. And then down the bottom, there's a G. You have another circle. So we've got three circles down the bottom of the G. They're the, they're the I don't give a flying flopper. Mm. Um, if it works for you, it's okay, bro, but it's just not in my circle. Um, and a lot of Gs are kids who have been forced to go to church the whole life and they get to the age of 15 and they see mum or dad do something that doesn't line up with what it is that they're actually preaching. Uh, and they say, well, if religion's like that, I want nothing to do with it. Me, I come from the general I don't give a flying flopper. But the encounter that I had in 2001 after that TRG mm. uh, got me, I had an encounter where I got nuked, and I'm telling you, I got nuked. I had three people who didn't even know each other um, come across my path one after the other telling me, um, I don't know if you've got time for it here, but telling me that God had a plan and purpose for my life. Mm. And um, uh, and each one of them was completely different, didn't even know each other. And I got what, what you call nuked. And I went from zero, in other words, a general flying flop, but a Christianese in a 100-mile flat. Because I, I have heard a story that you woke up one day and you said to Amanda, I need to go to church this morning. Yeah. Is that, is that, that's yeah, literally that what happened? About that time there, yeah. And I woke up and had a dream. And um, he said, I want you to go to church. And, then I, and I had to go to church. So I went and got geekified. <laughs> so I went out to a shop and bought myself a three-piece suit and, and walked into church and, and became a geek. Um, and it's, it's a really central plank of Shalom House, I understand. Um, it is and it faith. isn't. It's, it, no, it is. It isn't. It isn't. So, um, so, and the 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 fourth circle is the T. Uh, it's truth. And when when I got nuked, I went from zero to one hundred and half a second flat. The best way to communicate your faith is to shut your mouth and live it. 
that your actions speak louder than your words. The word shalom is a, is a is a Hebrew word, but it actually means truth in its purest form. It means mm-hmm. honesty, integrity, transparency, accountability. And so the best way to communicate your faith is by live it. And we don't push religion down anyone's throat. We actually employ at Shalom Muslims. Yep. We employ Hindus. We employ Buddhists. We employ atheists. We employ uh, whatever dream catchers with Japanese, Dirtanese, Chinese. What are they? We employ any person, and we take any person of any in faith. But we say that we are unashamedly a Christian organisation. That 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 our foundation is based on. Christian values. We are a Christian organization. Yep. We're a faith-based rehab. Do we rehabilitate Christians? Yes, we do. Yep. A lot of them actually need it, but we are unashamedly a Christian organization. Can I ask, uh, it just on the title, Australia's Strictest Rehab Center, yep. uh, one of the things that you do uh, is uh, is when people come in, you shave their heads, yep. among other things. You know, yep. It's just one of the things you do. Yep. Can I ask, why do you insist that all incoming um, rehab patients have the head shaved. Well, we could we could use the military for an example. I mean, if you go to the military, they shave your head. Yep. But let me ask you a question, and, and you have to answer this. Okay. Are, are top knots okay? No. <laughs> uh, mullets okay? Oh, they've had their time and place. I could appreciate a good mullet. <laughs> I probably wouldn't sport one myself, but... <laughs> but if you've, seen, if you've seen a person with a mohawk... Yep. ...and a mullet or a mullet... Yep. Or a top knot, and they come in your house, and they're covered in tattoos, and they walked in your house. What would you be thinking? Oh, look, it's human nature, isn't it? You form an opinion of of someone based on their appearance. Yeah, yeah we all project an image that people perceive. Yep. And by having the mullet and the top knot, I'm not having no mullet in my house, right? <laughs> Fair enough. And and, and, and and if I'm rehabilitating people, I want them to project an image that people perceive. But we have a rule in the house: what's relevant for one person is yep. relevant for every person. Yep. And who am I to say the mullet can't come in? Yep. And yet I can have the top knot. Yep. We're men. <laughs> men don't have top knots. <laughs> it's just not on. So we just say, okay, bro. Fair point. Shave your heads. Everyone's going to shave your head. And, and the reason we shave the head is because of the mullet. It's, the it's, 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 it's leveling. Yeah. Yep. We, if we have a rule in the house, what's relevant for one is relevant for everybody. But I'm not having blooming mullets and top knots <laughs> in my house, I tell you. Fair enough. I want to talk to you more about the makeup of Shalom House and also about uh, your recent foray into, into local politics as well. So uh, we'll stick around uh, for that, hopefully uh, more on that after the break. Uh, our special guests on this edition of Inspiring Stories, Peter Lyndon James, founder and CEO of Shalom House. Back with more on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back to this edition of Inspiring Stories. Peter Lyndon-James is our special guest, uh, the founder and CEO uh, of Shalom House. Can I ask, when you initially started Shalom House, obviously your background uh, is probably very troubling to some people. When you're going through the bureaucracy uh, of starting up a place like this, did you find it uh, a help or a hindrance? I found it an absolute hindrance. Even today, I found it a hindrance. Um, recently, um, normal people, I don't play sports or anything for a living. I've never done cricket or or soccer or I've never played any sports. I don't watch sports. Um, I've never played. I'm useless at it. I used to do drugs and guns and stuff, and I don't mind mm. shooting guns. But I found even recently, I went to join a gun club just as a, trying to find some sort of a recreational thing. And even still, my past 
even though it's been wiped by the courts, it still has an effect on my child. They, mm. they say, well, because of your history, we're not too sure we want you here. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's de- definitely definitely still affects me today. And, and yet when you're trying to connect with people who were in your predicament yeah. uh, back then, I imagine they look to you and say, you are my inspiration. If you can do it, there's hope that I can too. So does it help you to to really connect on the most basic level with some of these blokes? Straight out. I'm a, uh, myself and all my men at Shalom, 140 of us, if you meet my men, they're beautiful quality men. Mm. But we actually add, uh, act as a bridge between two cultures. Mm. I mean, those who feel like they don't belong and those who know they do belong. Yep. And so we act as a bridge between the two cultures. How do you accept people? Because, I mean, there are so many people out there who need help, who are horribly addicted well, uh, as we speak, but you can't help everyone. How do you vet those people and, and get people into Shalom House who you believe you can genuinely help? So I take in one out of every 20 um, uh, people who call my number. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two phones that literally don't run, uh, don't stop ringing. But I take one in out of every 20 um, you can class addiction in five categories. You have an A, a B, a C, a D, and E. An A is a fellow that's just starting off. A B is one that's actually accepted. It's okay. I'm not hurting anybody. They've believed the lie is the truth. A C and a D is one that no matter what you tell them, it's like a water hitting a windscreen. It just yep. runs down the wall. Yep. And an E, well, there's three types of E's. One of the types of E's is the little boy who was nine who was sitting in a prison cell. Yep. If somebody had opened that door that day, he would have changed. He was at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And he had his hand out and he said, hey, I'm ready for mm. change. The other E is the one that swaps from the heroin to the speed, the speed to the benzos, the benzos, to alcohol, to alcohol to the chuff. He can't see that he's doing anything wrong. It's mm. okay. He's enjoying himself. And the third E is the one that we build prisons for, that they're determined. They don't care about the consequences. They don't care if they hurt people. They like what they're doing and they're having fun. Yep. I look for the ones at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And because of how yep. I've lived the life I've lived, I'm really good at actually filtering them out. Yep. And yet it's, it is a very tough love program, uh, unashamedly. Uh, you put people through cold turkey detox. They have to basically work uh, there. But can I say, if, if, if Shalom House was around when you were a young man, how do you reckon you would have gone? Ah, oh, mate, off the charts, great. <laughs> Sail to it. It. It, actually, it actually was like that back then. Yeah. Back then. You take, you take um, uh, Riverbank and Longmore and you take the prison system back there back then um, – it was like that, like I've got, I've got it now. Mm. But because of the policies and the procedures and everything we've put in place, we're sparing people from the consequences of their choices. It's cause and effect. If you touch a hot plate, you, you get burnt. Mm. If you stick a needle in your arm, there's chemicals in there. It's going to mm. fry your brain. Mm. And, and do normal people work in society from Monday to Friday? Yeah, well, so do we. Mm. We, pull, we call it tough love. No, well, if you stick a needle in your arm, those chemicals keep you awake for 16 days. And more, I used to do 16 days, no sleep. Um, and then all of a sudden, I don't think it's okay for a person to willfully make stupid choices and stay awake for 16 days and abuse their body and sleep with prostitutes and break into houses and steal cars and when they're finished having all that fun, to rock up on somebody else's door and say, fill me with Valium for the next few weeks, help mm. me detox myself, I want to change my life. And, and they're just going to go like for a dog to the vomit and a pig to the mud. They haven't learned anything because mm. you've used another drug to get to them off that it. drug. You've taken them from a legal drug, uh, an illegal drug to a legal drug. So all we do is cold turkey detox, mm. no drugs. And so some of our fellows pace the corridors for two weeks. They don't sleep, they sweat, they shake. But we have a doctor, we have a psychiatrist, yep. we have 10 counsellors, we have full-on supervision. It's so cause and effect. The support's there. Yeah, if you yep. want to use drugs, mate, 
It's cold turkey yep. detox, yeah. And people are free to go any, if, anytime. anytime. Yep. They yep. can leave anytime they want. It, it must be, it, it, well, in equal measure, really distressing when people, you've got so much faith in go, but equally, people who make it through and change their lives, reconnect with oh. their families, that must just warm your heart. Oh, you, you, you walk in our office, our whole office is full of pictures of changed families. Yeah. Yeah, you see, you see, dads getting their kids back. Yeah, where it would be impossible. Mm. You see, men who who have done thirty years of their life in prison mm. and have four life suspensions, never to drive a license again. Yep, all of a sudden be awarded um, a license to drive a car. Yep, and he's driving a car. You see, a grown man who failed as a child. I got one bloke who come from a house as a kid. He seen his dad when he was six. He seen his dad put a gun to this bloke's head, blow this bloke's brains out, drop him in a hole. I mean, as a six-year-old kid, he's seen that, and his whole life he's been in prisons, and he didn't spend most of his life in prisons. For him, that's a standard norm. He's got four life suspensions. Now he's working, and he's just about to finish his third year as a mature-age apprentice plumber. Mm. He's driving his own car to work every day of the week. He's mm. got an extraordinary life, and he's a productive member of society. He doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't swear, and his life is completely turned around. Mm. I mean, he, he faced circumstances that he didn't create. And ultimately, that's that's why you do it. That's, that's why what I do keeps it. you going. Oh, you should see my men. In mm. my, even in my offices, all my staff in my house, in my organisation, they all start off with volunteers. You're never going to be rich at my organisation. <laughs> never going to be rich. You walk in my office. Not financially, anyway. Not financially. But mm. you walk in my office, and every one of my ladies will make your heart flutter. Mm. Every one of my staff, they're there because I love people, and, and people matter. Not money, people, but every one of my staff. You walk in there, and they they just shine. I've got ladies who are full of pink, and and oh, they're just gorgeous. Uh, look, we're running out of time. I just want to ask you quickly: uh, your book, Tough Love, yeah, uh, a phrase I just threw out there: tackling drug addiction and seeing change is the name of the book. Um, must have been tough at times to revisit all of those painful memories and and put them down on paper. Um. It, it it wasn't it wasn't it's just when you uh, get a phone or two phones that don't ring uh, don't stop ringing twenty four hours a day seven days a week, um, and when you are at the size that we're at, we're going to be doubled within in the yeah. next twelve months to put it all on paper. Um, it's just equipping families and showing families what they need to do, not what they want to do. Yeah, and for me, it's rewarding um, because it helps me to be in multiple places, not just one mm. place. Um, as as well, unbelievably, as if you didn't have enough on your plate. Uh, you're now a councillor in the city of Swan. Yeah, a councillor in the city of Swan. So I'm, uh, I ran for local council in the last election. One of the most brilliant campaigns too. If you haven't seen it, check it out because you, you, you never see a political campaign as, as honest <laughs> and open as yours. Yeah, I, I actually literally put it all out there. I intend to continue to put it all yeah. out there. Yep. Literally, warts and all. Yep. Refreshing. Refreshing. Let's call it refreshing. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um. You know, you've been recognised uh, with nominations as Australian of the Year and, and various other uh, accolades. Can I ask, I, I can't imagine you get much downtime for no. hobbies, but what do you do to chill out? You must need sometimes just to switch off. Or do you You just don't even give yourself that luxury? I actually don't have a chance. Yeah. Um, I don't have a life anymore. Mm. Um, I really don't have a life Uh um, I've found that because of the position that I hold, I have 140 men. Yep. I all have families. I have 70 staff. I have a wife. My children have grown up. Um, my life um, isn't mine anymore. And I've found for myself to actually do what I do um, to create authority, you need to create distance. 
And so actually I don't have any friends. Yep. I don't have any social life. I don't mix with anybody. I don't go to any weddings. I don't go to anything. I just me and my wife. Mm. Um, but I don't have a life anymore. My life mm. is uh, not my own. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, I'm, I. I uh, what a, what an incredible unit you guys. The, the best time of my day is sleep. Mm. <laughs> but my, my wife is my safe place. She's my best friend. Yep. And um, yeah, of twenty six years we've been married. It's a long time. Yeah. Well, good on you. Well, look, I'd love to chat more to you, but unfortunately we are out of time. So, look, we really appreciate you, well, not just coming in and sharing your story, but uh, more importantly, doing what you do. Yeah, thanks it, for it's, having me. It's an incredible thing, but I can I can see uh, uh, what it means to you to keep doing it. Yeah, I love people. Yeah. So, look, thank you very much for sharing your story. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Here's some tips for maintaining your Trex deck. Um, occasionally wash it with some soapy water or a pressure cleaner. Trex composite decking is low maintenance and won't fade, splinter or warp. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.